Now that monument is absolutely beautiful. I, I encourage listeners to go on whatever map app that you use and take a look at the Bennington Monument in Bennington, Vermont. It is huge. And I'm wondering when I looked at it, can people go to the top of the monument? A good question. People can go to the top of the monument. There, there is an elevator that will take you to the top. It's the largest man-made structure in Vermont. It tops out around 306 feet. And it's a historic site that's run by the, the state of Vermont. So it sits in a green in Old Bennington, which is a part of Bennington, and has a beautiful view. It's a really impressive site, and it's very, very, very peaceful. So I, I encourage everyone that comes to the state of Vermont or to the Berkshires of Massachusetts or the Capital District in New York State to take that drive. Take an hour hour and a half and come come to Bennington because not only do we have the museum here, which is a world-class museum, but the Bennington Battle Monument is also well worth seeing, as well as a number of other attractions, including the Robert Frost House here in Bennington, Vermont. Hey, welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. You just heard Executive Director Martin Mahoney talking about the Bennington Monument, the Bennington Museum, and other historic sites in Bennington, Vermont, that should bring everyone even close to the area in for a visit. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. For the next couple of episodes, we'll be in the great state of Vermont. What a wonderful place. We have a great show for you today. Today, we greet Martin Mahoney from the Bennington Museum located in Bennington, Vermont. It's a world-class museum and, in my view, a national treasure. It was such a pleasure and an honor to learn more about it. Whether you're an individual, a family, business, or foundation, you can help them fulfill their mission. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the museum has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the museum sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but we're also on almost every podcast platform as well as TikTok, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. 
If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, just spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Now, before we get started, on our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll be meeting with the Dorset Historical Society, located in Dorset, Vermont. The Dorset Historical Society was incorporated in 1963. The Society discovers and collects materials from the time the town was chartered in 1761 to the present that help establish or illustrate the history of Dorset, Vermont. To provide for the preservation of relevant collections, to exhibit archival materials and disseminate historical information, and to educate members of the Society and the public. They tell a very important story of America, and it'll be fun and interesting chatting with John Matthewson, the curator for the Society. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical March events and birthdays for this episode. On March 1st, 1781, formal ratification of the Articles of Confederation was announced by Congress. Under the Articles, Congress was the sole governing body of the new American national government, consisting of the 13 original states. The Articles remained in effect through the Revolutionary War until 1789, when the current U.S. Constitution was adopted. That means for eight years prior to the United States Constitution, the Congress was the government of the country. On March 4, 1789, the first meeting of the new Congress under the new U.S. Constitution took place in New York City. From our Yes, That Really Happened file, on March 2nd, happy birthday to American soldier and politician Sam Houston, who lived from 1793 to 1863. He was born in Rockbridge County, Virginia. As a teenager, he ran away and joined the Cherokee Indians, who accepted him as a member of their tribe. He later served as a congressman and governor of Tennessee. In 1832, he became commander of the Texan Army in the War for Texan Independence, defeating the larger Mexican Army in 1836 at the Battle of San Jacinto. He then served as senator and governor of the new state of Texas, but was removed in 1861 after refusing to swear allegiance to the Confederacy. From our Hey, It's Happening Again and Again file, we have two entries. The first is March 11, 1918, the Spanish influenza first reached America as 107 soldiers became sick at Fort Riley, Kansas. One quarter of the United States population eventually became ill from the deadly virus, resulting in 500,000 deaths. The death toll worldwide approached 22 million by the end of 1920. The next one is March 12, 1888. The Great Blizzard of 88 struck the northeastern United States. The storm lasted 36 hours with snowfall totaling over 40 inches in New York City where over 400 persons died from the surprise storm. Now on to general events and birthdays for March. March 4, 1681, King Charles II of England granted a huge tract of land in the New World to William Penn to settle an outstanding debt. The area later became Pennsylvania. On March 31st, happy birthday to Franz Joseph Haydn, who lived from 1732 to 1809. He was born in Rohra, Austria. He is considered the father of the symphony and the string quartet. His works include 107 symphonies, 50 divertimenti, 84 string quartets, 58 piano sonatas, and 13 masses. Based in Vienna, Mozart was his friend, 
and Beethoven was a pupil. Many thanks to HistoryPlace.com for our historic events and birthdays for this episode. Let's take a well-deserved swallow of Twining's tea. Oh, that's good tea. Good tea. Love Twining's tea. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms as well as TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. Before we bring our guest on, here's a brief biography so you can all get to know him. Martin holds an impressive, progressive track record of more than 20 years of museum leadership experience. At the Norman Rockwell Museum, Martin was responsible for managing the museum's national and international traveling and on-site exhibitions, as well as supervising registration, collections, facility, operations, and security departments. As a member of the museum executive team, he was deeply involved in fundraising and budgeting on the institutional level, managing multiple departments overseeing the preservation and operational management of the museum's historical buildings and participating as a key stakeholder in the institutional strategic planning for the expansion of the museum. Martin is also a State of Vermont Commissioner for the 250th Sesquicentennial Celebrations. Martin has curated numerous exhibitions, including Journey, David McCauley, 2019, Perspective and Place, Thomas W. Barrett's Hudson River Valley, 2016, and Mort Kunstler, The Art of Adventure, 2014, just to name a few. He graduated from Castleton State University with a BA in history and holds advanced degrees from both the State University of New York at Albany, where he received an MA in public history and the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, where he completed his MBA. Martin also participated in the prestigious Getty Leadership Institute, now the Museum Leadership Institute, in 2019. A member of the Berkshire chapter of the Appalachian Mountain Club, Martin has served as the chapter vice chair and chair and has previously sat on the boards of the Williamstown Art Conservation Center as well as the Massachusetts Art Commission and the State House. He's particularly interested in the intersection of history and popular culture, as well as the evolving cross-connection of environmental stewardship and community advocacy and how they can be leveraged as economic engines to assist in the revitalization of communities. Welcome to the program, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you so much for being here. You know, whenever I think of Vermont, four things come to mind. Number one is Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Trouble with Harry. Have you seen it? have briefly perused a few clips of it. Okay. It's known in the area more for its uh, <laughs> compassionate uh, way it, it's filmed the Vermont countryside. Yeah. The second thing is maple syrup. I hear you're just going into sugaring season. That's right. It's getting to be weather for a sugaring season, and sugaring season, usually you need 40-degree days and freezing nights for the sap to run, and actually 40 is the magic number because it takes 40 bucks of sap to make that one golden bucket of syrup. So wow. it is It is a celebrated taste here in Vermont, and they do everything from ice cream cones to alcoholic beverages with syrup in it. I know I was in Pasadena, California one time, and that's where the Rose Parade was held. And I was in the hotel, and I started smelling roses everywhere. I was like, wow, 
this is really cool. Is it the same there when it's sugaring season? Huh. Um, it's it's the same if you're close to someone who's boiling, for sure. And it's common to be driving through the countryside and you'll see these sugar houses boiling all day and all night because once the sap's running, you gotta you gotta process it. So there is a, a faint smell of syrup in the air, but we're also a farming community too. So we have a faint smell of something else. <laughs> Uh, I also love Vermont's fall colors and the, and the blessed beauty of the countryside. Vermont is just beautiful. It is. Many of us have moved here, including many artists that have come here and stayed to paint the fall colors, but then to paint all four seasons. Fantastic. I also know you have a lot of covered bridges. Well, I don't know if I'd say a lot, but you have covered bridges and they're beautiful. We do. We do. And made famous by the many, many paintings of, of Grandma Moses. Yeah, and you have a lot of those. We do. We have the best Grandma Moses collection that's accessible by the public. You know, the area has the Bennington Monument. It's so beautiful and very tall at more than 300 feet. Can you tell us a little bit about the Battle of Bennington? Sure. The Battle of Bennington happened in 1777, and it was part of the American Revolution. It occurred due to Burgoyne moving towards his eventual defeat in Saratoga. And as he was coming up through through this area, he sent a detachment of troops, mostly German mercenaries, towards Bennington to capture livestock and and carriages to help support his army. And the the original original target was Manchester, Vermont, but then the troops that were invading found that Bennington was the true destination, and they were repulsed. What is now today in the area of Wollumsac, New York, but the revolutionaries that were comprised of rebels from New Hampshire, from Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, among other places, came together and over a period of, of days pushed back the, the invading German troops, um, handing them a pretty, pretty heavy defeat. The monument is built on the site of their destination, of their supposed destination. So that was where the livestock and the carriages would have been in Bennington, although they were intercepted before they got to the town, the town limits. And we also have to remember that state borders were different back in 1777. So where the battle happened, it actually was in what was known as Vermont at the time. Wow. Now, that monument is absolutely beautiful. I, I encourage listeners to go on whatever map app that you use and take a look at the Bennington Monument in Bennington, Vermont. It is huge. And I'm wondering, when I looked at it, can people go to the top of the monument? A good question. People can go to the top of the monument. There, there is an elevator that will take you to the top. It's the largest man-made structure in Vermont. It tops out around 306 feet. And it's a historic site that's run by the, the state of Vermont. So it sits in a green in Old Bennington, which is a part of Bennington, and has a beautiful view. It's a really impressive site, and it's very, very, very peaceful. So I, I encourage everyone that comes to the state of Vermont or to the Berkshires of Massachusetts or the Capital District in New York State to take that drive. Take an hour hour and a half and come come to Bennington because not only do we have the museum here, which is a world-class museum, 
But the Bennington Battle Monument is also well worth seeing, as well as a number of other attractions, including the Robert Frost House here in Bennington, Vermont. Yeah, I know you've got so many historic colonial homes and historic districts and places in the area. What's your personal favorite? Well, if I was looking at historic homes in in the area, I mean, it would be split between two really different but distinctive buildings. One is the the Woolumsack Inn, which is this old inn that sits in old old Bennington, and it's been neglected for you know the better part of, of a few decades. And it's it's just this big, gray gardens, um, rambling beast of a house, and the family that owns it at this time is really starting to get in into the idea of preservation and seeing what the best avenues to maintain this this really distinctive property are. And the other one would be Park McCullough, which is a historic mansion in North Bennington. And that, that one is restored and you can tour it. And it just is a really great you know, Victorian era mansion that has been brought back to the, the peak of, of what it used to be. Fantastic. In addition to houses and, and, and the historic homes, there's many famous people from the history of America from your area, like Robert Frost that you mentioned, Ethan mm-hmm. Allen, Grandma Moses, Norman Rockwell. And I keep thinking about Ethan Allen. He was famous for making furniture, right? Yeah, that's right. He, he made the ottoman that's in everybody's living room. Now, Ethan Allen, of course, famous as one of the leaders of the Green Mountain Boys, but really instrumental in the raid of Fort Ticonderoga, just out, just uh, across the way from us. But we we do have we have been the home of many famous creative people, including Norman Rockwell, who lived in Arlington, Vermont, which is 12 miles north of us, and then moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, later in his life. But while he was in Arlington, he really I would say spent time and created that definitive Norman Rockwell brand that everyone's familiar from the Saturday Evening Post and his work with look and of course his advertising. It's just uh, he was as famous as anybody could be in the 20th century in a time where artists and illustrators truly were like rock stars. Wow. Most people associate Norman Rockwell with Vermont and Massachusetts, but he was he was born on the outskirts of New York City, and when you hear him speak, he had this distinctive New York accent and spent most of his early career in New Rochelle, New York. Wow, that's cool. I know Vermont is just steeped in history. Are there any Native American connections to the area or the museum? Of course. So we, we sit, Bennington County sits, sits in a land that the southern part of it was, was populated by the, the Muncie Stockbridge tribe. And they eventually were forced out of out of their lands and now reside in Wisconsin. But they left a, a you know a rich cultural legacy, and they were involved in many aspects of life in what we refer to as colonial times. And north of us would be the Abenaki tribe, which has a number of active members still in Vermont and in the over the Canadian border. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that is. It's an interesting area that we would like to focus more in the way we collect more contemporary native art because we want to, you know, we want to respect and appreciate that these people are still with us. They're not forgotten to history and, and they're very active and they're part of, of our 
social and cultural circles. No kidding. Uh, do you have any connections to the tribe in Wisconsin? Uh, the the Muncie Stockbridge they they actually have have some outreach offices just across the border in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and we do program with them on a regular basis. Oh wow! And uh, we we of course value and treasure that because who better to speak on on the history of the native peoples of this this continent than the native peoples? Yeah, absolutely. What's the history of Bennington County? So Bennington County, it was the frontier. It was settled by both the, initially the French passed through and of course the English. It is the oldest county in Vermont that's still in existence. And it is, it's unique is in that Bennington is split into two sections, North and South, which they call the North Shire and the South Shire. Bennington's had a long, long history with agriculture and then with industry around the Industrial Revolution becoming a big center for pottery and stoneware. Bennington College settled and was opened here later on. And Bennington College really was at the forefront of some of the more avant-garde artist movements. They had a deep connection with New York City, so they brought in a lot of great professors that could teach about the culturals. And that just kind of became became a cycle. So people would come here to, you know, get away, to get out of the city, to vacation and fall in love with the area and stay. And they'd either set up industry, set up, you know, their studios and just really seem to to run from there. So this county, Bennington County seat, is different than any other county seat I've encountered so far on the podcast. There's a shared county seat. How does that work? Well, <laughs> it goes back to the roots of, of Vermonters being very independent. And it gives a lot of power to the local towns to, to run themselves. And there is a good example of that is, is in the the curriculum in high schools of Vermont. So there is no statewide curriculum that's standardized. Every town and school district has the opportunity to set their curriculum. So they really have have a, a lot of say in how vigorous their their education is. They have a um, lot of freedom. They they certainly do. And and that kind of goes uh, hand in hand with with of course the founding of the state, the founding of the Vermont Republic, which was the first constitutional republic 10 years before the American Constitution was ratified. Ah. You know, it wasn't one of the 13 colonies. It, it decided to go out on its own for 10 years. That's the American spirit. I like it. Mm -hmm. So what's the history of Bennington? Bennington's, uh, it, its history really is mimics the, the history of, of the nation as a whole. So frontier town, settled, wide swaths of land sold off or given to to various people agriculture moves in and people eke out a living into and then as they're eking out a living it's in direct contrast to new york state which which you have to remember had that dutch influence so there's the patroon system over in new york state in the hudson river valley area so you have this fiercely independent spirit over here where people were uh, more self-directed and then the patroon system across the Hudson, which led to conflict. And as the American Revolution agitation was was beginning, Vermont also had a fiercely independent spirit and you know was was very much about separating from the powers that be. And I would say that that's a theme that's been repeated throughout time here in Vermont. 
Yeah, you guys can be very proud of what you've built. You mentioned a term that I'm not sure I understand. It's the patroon system. Oh, the patroon system. <laughs> so the patroon system is, it's like the patronage system. It's large, large landowners. I guess it would, the direct analogy would be almost like indentured servitude. So you never really own the land. You'd work the land. You'd give a percentage of your, your crop or your product to the, the people that own the land. So these giant landowners in New York State, a good uh, name that comes up time and time again is, is the Rensselaers. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. There was a big controversy about that. So then, you know, Benjamin grew, grew out of an agricultural society. Uh, industry moved in. As I mentioned, the, the stoneware and the pottery really, really were one of the centers of, of that industry. But, you know, this town had everything that you could imagine. Um, machine shops, darning factories, needle factories, all, all sorts of the typical industrial re- revolution history. And, and with that, you have the rise of the labor movement. You have rise of unions. You have people moving into the 19th and 20th century. And then it becomes more of a center for, you know, people come to get that fresh air to clear out the system to it becomes a, a vacation destination. And then in the 20th century, we have the advent of one of the most important things to the Vermont economy today, which is the advent of skiing. And the ski industry really took off here in Vermont. In fact, it's the home of the inventor of, of the snowboard, of Burton Snowboards, which, which revolutionized the industry. And today, it's very much a combination of tourism, culturals, industry, and agriculture. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful space. And in some places, you can see the exact same landscapes that Norman Rockwell and Grandma Moses painted in the 1940s and 50s. Wow, that's cool. I know I have an episode coming up with the International Skiing Association. Oh, great. And uh, so I'll ask him about Vermont. With regard to the Bennington Museum, all I got to say is, wow. Martin, what's the history of the Bennington Museum? Good question. So the Bennington Museum came out of the Bennington Historical Association that started back in the 1850s. And that association was originally founded to help celebrate the 1777 battle that was fought nearby the Battle of Bennington. So after they finished their primary objective, which was the culmination of the opening of the Bennington Battle Monument, the association turned to how are we going to further commemorate our area? What's special about it? What's interesting about it? And in 1923, the association acquired this beautiful building, which is the first St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church, and the diocese sold it to the association. And the museum, after some work, opened to the public in 1928 as the Bennington Historical Museum. Various additions happened in the 30s, the 60s, the 70s, and most recently, 1999. And we also underwent a name change, becoming the Bennington Historical Art Museum and Art Gallery, and then finally, in the 50s, the Bennington Museum. So that is in a nutshell, the brief history of the building and the motivations to form the Bennington Museum. It's a beautiful place. It really is not just a local treasure, it's a national treasure. No doubt about it. 
Now, the Bennington Museum 2023 season opens on April 1st, just a week from now. And I hope everyone anywhere near Bennington goes for a visit to the Bennington Museum this season. It's well worth it. Have you got big plans for this season? We've got big plans. So we've decided to, to center on community for the opening part of our season. So we are opening with a school art show, which we are putting in our major temporary exhibition galleries. And we're going to keep that on view for a month and a half. And then we're going to go into an exhibition that we're collaborating with, with the uh, Southern Vermont Art Center entitled For the Love of Vermont. And this, this show deals mostly with painting, but painters that were coming up to Bennington and Manchester in the early 20th century. And they kind of found founded this, this little artistic colony or this group of people that would come up here and be moved by what they saw and really started producing some amazing work. And they would tell their friends back in New York and Boston. And all of a sudden, there was this really strong influence of classically trained painters from various cities coming up to our little corner in Vermont and producing some amazing work. So we are going to focus on that. And, and we've got it broken out into you know, various themes, which include your traditional you know, buildings that are really popular here in Bennington, but also landscape and how people interacted with the land. And you have this really interesting mix of, of traditional landscape painting coming in at the same time where people are starting to breathe in this new this new artistic movement coming out of the Ashcan School, people that were trained in you know, Impressionism and Modernism is starting just to peek its head around the corner and this, and this mix is wonderful. So it's gonna be very exciting. At the same time, we're also doing a show called The History of Bennington, which centers on objects that were used and the stories that they tell from what, what we would call traditionally subjugated groups. So, you know, at the same time, Vermont was one of the first states or the first state to outlaw slavery. Slavery still happened still on, in the margins. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Let's talk about the women's influence in the Revolutionary War specific to the Battle of Bennington. Uh, let's, let's talk about how Vermont was one of the early leaders in rights for, for uh, lesbian and gay couples in the early 2000s. That's cool. It's like the fabric of Bennington. It's very cool. Exactly. As I was looking across the internet, the Bennington Museum seems to be both the local museum and a part of the Bennington Historical Society somehow. Can you describe that? Sure. Uh, The Bennington Historical Society is, is a program of the museum. It sits under our umbrella. But at the same time, they also have a lot of self-determination. So the Historical Society focuses on, on their love, the history of Bennington, and they program uh, quite a bit. So they bring in a lot of speakers. They bring in a lot of uh, events to the museum that we can hold in our space. So we, we give them that support, and they support us with wonderful programming that we offer free to the public. And it seems to be a win-win. It keeps them very much in the forefront of the minds of the people of Bennington and, and the surrounding areas. And it also gives us the, the chance to bring in some wonderful programs and, and get a lot of foot traffic to those programs. Fantastic. I mentioned before that there's a number of historic districts and places in Bennington County. 
Does the museum help care for any of those? We don't directly care for any of the historic districts. We are often asked to give advice and we serve as a repository for information so we can always point people in the right direction. We're lucky we're in New England. There's always a person that is an expert in whatever aspect of historical reconstruction or architecture or whatever your niche is, we can usually point people in the right direction. I need to provide listeners with the contact information for the Bennington Museum. You can contact the Bennington Museum at 75 Main Street. You can go visit them at 75 Main Street, Bennington, Vermont, 05201. Their website is BenningtonMuseum.org. The phone number is 802-447-1571. You can email them at info at BenningtonMuseum.org. And you can find them on Facebook at Bennington Museum. That all sound correct? That's perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Can you provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your museum? Sure. As the Bennington Museum really is centered on community, we try to appeal to everyone. And we've done a lot of work in the last, I would say, year to six months of going out into the community and doing what I would characterize as empathetic listening sessions, going to all sorts of groups from schools to other not-for-profits to veterans, veterans groups, and asking the question, what are you looking for? Not going and saying, this is what we have to offer, but asking people what they need and what they want. So we are altering our programmatic offerings based on that feedback. And our our educators have really taken the lead and I couldn't be more proud of of the way that they're doing it. But of course, we are also a tourist destination. We service the the folks that come to see the the Bennington Monument, to come to see Grandma Moses and to learn about the Bennington area in general. All of those skiers are going to need somewhere to go and enrich their culture or their cultural knowledge when they're not skiing, right? Well, that's right. You know, it rains every once in a while. So it gives them that opportunity. We, we are certainly a tourist destination and we try to serve our community. And much like many museums and historical societies, we've also made the pivot to online programming. And I think we've reached that really healthy balance of offering programming that speaks to our mission, that's like missionary work that, that goes out there for free. And also offering programming that people are willing to pay for, both online and in person. And that that really is a sweet spot that we hope to maintain for the ongoing future. Fantastic. What about you? What's your background? How did you come to do what you do now? Well, I, like many of your listeners, and I'm sure many people in the profession, was a great lover of history. And really fell in love with it at an early age. And I was given the opportunity by my parents to you know, visit a number of museums, which I, of course, didn't appreciate at the time. I would actively resent them for dragging me to another historical uh, monument or battlefield. Of course. But in time, in time, I think they just wore me down. So uh, I was lucky enough to, to have an early internship in, in a museum and fell in love with it. And halfway through my bachelor's degree, I, I realized that I, I didn't really want to teach. I really wanted to work with the objects because I felt like the objects tell the story. 
because there's nothing like seeing the real object. I, I always compare it to, you can see a picture of the Grand Canyon on a computer screen, but when you go to the Grand Canyon, it blows you away. You can see The Last Supper painted by Da Vinci on your computer screen. You go to it and it just takes your breath away. And of course, you know, you can do that with, with all sorts of things, live music, dance, theater. So there's nothing, nothing beats the real thing. So that's why I fell in love with that. And, and I was lucky I was able to, to follow through. I attended grad school at SUNY Albany. I worked for the National Park Service. I had a great internship at the, what was then called the Denver Museum of Natural History. Nice. And after I graduated grad school, I, I was very fortunate. And a month or two later, I had my first full-time job at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, where I worked with an amazing amazing curator, uh, Bill Sargent, who really gave me the opportunity to grow and, and to and push me. And after a few years there, I worked at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Mass., just about an hour and a half south of Route 7 from Bennington. And amazing, amazing opportunities. Learned a lot. Was able to get an MBA while I was there. Was able to uh, attend the Getty program and and had the opportunity to grow to curate to work in genealogy to do oral histories to do video programs and and really was was fantastic so do really appreciate it it's, it's the classic success story how do you get ahead you work hard and you're really lucky and it's a lot of luck and and I'm, i appreciate the opportunities and i I, I do acknowledge that I, I was very privileged to have those opportunities. Hey, you're quite qualified. It's just a, an honor having you here. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from your museum's history? Huh. Well, I haven't been here for most of it, so I may not be the, the one most qualified to, to speak of it. But, you know, our founding director was a really interesting man, um, John Spargo. John Spargo came to Bennington as as a really hardcore socialist, and by the time he passed away, he was a Goldwater Republican. So he had he had a change of heart in the time here, and he was he was the the founding director, curator, you know, just general driving force of the museum at the time. And people described him as a man of many feuds. So he 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 loved to stir things up. He loved to make trouble, and uh, he was one of those writers that wouldn't pick one word when two sentences would do. So he was very prolific. And he's just he's just one of those characters in American history. You can see how their thoughts evolve. And whether you agree with them or disagree with them, you have to appreciate the fact that he really put together this amazing institution from nothing. Fantastic. Martin, it's time for a break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Explore the wonders of the great art and history of Bennington and Vermont at the Bennington Museum, where you can see paintings by Grandma Moses and Norman Rockwell. This exceptionally fine institution is located in your own hometown and nestled in the green mountains of Bennington, Vermont. Bring your family, bring a friend, 
or just come on down to learn more about why they love Bennington. Please donate, join, support, and visit the Bennington Museum. For hours, admissions, membership, and volunteer opportunities, visit the website at benningtonmuseum.org. It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. On this segment of Book Shorts, we're very fortunate to be joined by the publisher of the Iowa History Journal, Michael Swanger. You can subscribe to the journal at iowahistoryjournal.com. Iowa History Journal is Iowa's only popular magazine devoted exclusively to its fascinating history. Now in their 14th year, they publish six issues annually that are packed with unique stories about Iowa icons, entertainment, sports, politics, towns, and historical attractions that appeal to Iowans of all ages. Knowing the past is a key to understanding the present and the future. Iowa History Journal is a wonderful educational tool told in an entertaining and fun style. We selected the Iowa History Journal for a book short segment because of its award-winning dedication to publishing Iowa history and how this can help family historians researching their Iowa ancestors. The Iowa History Journal has won many awards and honors throughout its own history. Recently, the journal won the 2022 George Mills Louise Noun Popular History Award category. Each year, the State Historical Society of Iowa Board of Trustees honors those who preserve and promote Iowa's history with a variety of excellence in history awards. The George Mills Louise Noun Popular History Award recognizes the author of the most significant article on an Iowa history topic published in a popular history periodical during the previous calendar year. The award is named in honor of Iowa reporter and popular historian George Mills and historian of women's history and philanthropist Louise Noun. Please join me in welcoming Michael Swanger. Welcome to the program, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Can you please tell us the mission of Iowa History Journal? You bet. We are the only statewide popular magazine devoted exclusively to Iowa's history. And in a nutshell, our mission is to educate Iowans about our rich and fascinating history. I think that as Iowans, we have an inherent inferiority complex about our past. We don't think that we're that exciting where some states, for example, if you meet someone from Texas, they're quite familiar with their state's history and very proud of it. But in Iowa, it's not always that case. We don't think that uh, anything interesting or someone that interesting or special has come from Iowa, and it's just simply not true. And so we're trying to do the big work as a small business of informing Iowans of all ages across the state about all the uh, incredible things that have taken place in our state and the incredible people who have come from it. We publish six issues a year, Sean, and I learn something new every time. I'm a former longtime newspaper editor and reporter, and one of the things I love about the work that I do 
is the lifelong learning aspect of it. And every time we put out a new issue, we constantly hear from readers who say, I didn't know that about Iowa. I didn't know this person was from Iowa or that this event took place in Iowa. And I love hearing that because I know that we're on target and I'm not the only one who feels that way. And that's the beauty of owning this publication is learning something new every day about Iowa. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Can you help us understand how this journal can help family historians researching their Iowa ancestors? That's a good question. Now, admittedly, we do not publish family histories per se. I do get asked occasionally from readers who have submitted their family histories, and we we don't typically publish those. What I will say, however, is that of the many people, places, events that we have written about in our 14 years, as you can imagine, those people, places, events have intersected with the lives of thousands of Iowans across the state. And so in some ways, it really does help not only bring in into the fold things that have happened that people may have forgotten about, but maybe they'll realize that their family has had a connection to the things that we're writing about. And we often hear from readers who say, oh, my mother used to work at that company or my father was friends with this person or something to that effect. And what we hope is that it sparks a conversation within their own homes about their own family history so that they start paying more attention to that and writing it down. One of the things that I will say, and you're probably quite familiar with this idea, is that it seems like whenever we lose someone that we love, we wish that we would have talked to them more about our family's history. And that happened to me two years ago when my mother died. And I wrote a column about it in um, Iowa History Journal about using that as kind of a springboard to remind people to talk to their parents and their grandparents to start writing down their family history, because it's important. Because as you know, once you lose a valuable member of your family, you lose a lot of personal family history. So you want to capture that while you can. Yeah, absolutely. Where's the best place to pick up a copy of the Iowa History Journal, and how can somebody subscribe so they get it mailed to their home? You bet. Single issues are sold on the racks at most Hy-Vee and Fairway stores in Iowa, as well as Walmart, and now every Barnes & Noble in Iowa, Mills Fleet Farm, and some other outlets. You can also go to our website, iowahistoryjournal.com, to subscribe or buy single issues and our collectible back issues And they can even call us. We're a small family-owned business. I answer the phone. They can call us at 515-490-7325. Happy to help them subscribe or give a gift subscription. It's, It's a great gift. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Listeners, pick up a copy of the Iowa History Journal on newsstands or at checkout aisles all across Iowa. Better yet, subscribe to the Iowa History Journal at iowahistoryjournal.com and you'll receive six jam-packed issues annually delivered right to your mailbox. This excellent journal containing interesting articles about the history of Iowa can help you understand more about your Iowa ancestors and the lives they led. Michael, I'd like to thank you for your time today and for the Iowa History Journal. Thank you for what you do. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. See you all next time on Book Shorts.
Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Executive Director Martin Mahoney from the Bennington Museum in Bennington, Vermont. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Martin. Thank you. Still good to be here. What kinds of exhibits are on display at the museum? That's a great, great question. And we have everything from art, history, innovation, most known for, I would say, in the wide world for our Grandma Moses collection, which is one of the more significant ones in the nation and as well as the world. But people, people also come for our stoneware collections, our modern art collections, the exhibitions that our curatorial team does on the people that lived, died, and, uh, and worked in, in our area. We, we have everything from a, a beautiful custom coachwork car from the early 20th century to modern ceramics that were made as recently as a year ago. So it, it really does run the gamut. It's one of the more interesting collections I've worked with because it's so scattered and you can tell so many stories. We have just a tremendous, tremendous asset in our collection. And it, it is truly impressive. One of the more interesting things that I discovered as, as I came here, not being heavily immersed in the fabric arts, is, is the 1863 Jane Stickle quilt, which, which is only on view one month out of every year. But it drives a tremendous amount of visitation to our museum because people are really fascinated with not only the quilt, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of, of artistry and done by you know, a woman who was local here in Vermont, but was, was popularized by a book called Dear Jane, which talks about one woman's love and I guess you could say obsession with recreating this quilt, and, which is a modern book. And people just seem to be really drawn to it. It's, it speaks to people in a way that if you're lucky, you get to, to watch um, in a museum. Fantastic. Do you exhibit any collections anywhere else in the area, like the airport or churches or places like that? We don't have a partnership with, with any other institutions at this time. We do have an active uh, loan program where we do loan our, our objects to other institutions, both nationwide. And I believe there's a loan coming up in Canada with the Winnipeg Art Gallery that we're excited about. But no, we don't, we don't have any substations at this time. Okay. I like that term, substations. That's great. <laughs> now, I always ask this question. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? That's a hard question to ask because, you know, as historical preservationists, as historians, as curators, you're, you're beaten over the head that all objects tell, tell interesting stories and everything's the same. I think I would be negligent if I said uh, I'd make sure our visitors and our staff would get out first. And then if it could be safely done, I would certainly want to grab one of the, the Moses paintings and this, this amazing piece of, of, I guess it would be called folk art. It's called a memory tower. And it's just this amazing piece of, of, of sculpture done by by an individual and these pieces of sculpture that fit in to make this memory tower tell a story only known to them but it's a very private story and i just i just love the fact of of people putting that much of themselves into a piece of artwork and having it reflected and and then shared with with people a hundred years later well, that's very cool thank you for that mm -hmm. 
What kind of funding model supports the museum? What are your funding goals this year? We are a private institution. We do not receive funding from the town of Pennington. Um, like, like many other institutions, we are always fundraising. We're looking for grants from state, local, and national granting bodies. We've been lucky enough to be the recipients of recently grants coming through the state of Vermont, through the NEH, through private foundations. But we are, we are also, we have a membership model. We treasure and love our members and they help support our mission. Um, we actively seek out sponsorships for our exhibitions and our programming. And of course, like many other institutions, the people that come through the door and the people that spend their money in the gift shop, it all goes to support the care and feeding of our collections. Right. Is the Bennington Museum itself on the historic register? We're in a historic district. We're part of Old Bennington. Okay. What are your funding goals this year? Well, we are, are gearing up for some, I would say, substantial changes to the way the museum presents to the public, our forward-facing space. So we are going to dive into projects that deal with accessibility to the building, parking to the building, and really trying to make that that curb appeal, that first bit of the visitor experience as, as pleasant as possible. And then we're going to roll out from there and build on the work that our educators are doing about how, how to best serve the community, what kind of programming are people looking for, and design that, that programming and, and do that outreach and find, find ways to support it. When you mentioned before that you're going out to the communities and saying, what do you want to see? You're doing that with your members as well, right? Oh, of course. So, yeah. you know, we always, we hold a yearly um, member, member meeting where people can come in and I present to the members and they have an opportunity to ask specific questions. And we've done, we've done a lot of work in the past on asking, you know, what is the, you know, for lack of a better word, the unique value proposition of the Bennington Museum? What do we do better than others? What can we do better? And, and what are you looking for a, as a member? And you know, time and time again, it comes down to thoughtful exhibitions that inspire delight, that inspire thought, as well as taking care of the history of our area, because that's what we really are. You know, the, the core of a curator's job, the core word is keeper. So we really do keep the public's collective memory, and we hold that in a public trust. The community seems to appreciate that, but also at the same time, expanding our programmatic opportunities. What, what haven't we done before? And, and times change. How can we change with them? Oh, that's very good. You mentioned memberships and that you're largely funded by memberships, if I understood you correctly. Are there membership levels? There are. There are a number of membership levels. So you've got your, your typical individual membership that starts at around $100. And then you can go all the way up to what we call our Monument Society member, which is a higher level member, which is over 1000 But that also, you know, being a friend of the museum gets you access to certain cultural events that the museum supports or opportunities to go out into other culturals and learn about them as well. So we do, we do have a membership model. We try to keep it as affordable as possible for everyone. And speaking of that, we, we certainly try to encourage all of our younger patrons to come to the museum. We're, 
free to those that are 17 years old and younger. And, and of course, we work with all the high schools and the colleges to offer them free admission as well. If there is ever an issue with people being able to pay the fee to come into the museum, we will find a solution to it. Oh, that's great. So if I become a member, what kind of benefits do I get? Well, you know, we have we have your standard benefits. You get you get a newsletter. Um, if you come in at a certain level, at a, as what they call a NARM member, you get access to a number of institutions uh, throughout the country. So NARM membership at, at around $150 is really probably the best the best deal out there. You get invited to a number of our events, performance, lectures, museum openings, members-only openings, and at the higher levels, of course, you have access to exclusive events, which include tours of artist studios, other institutions, and performances. Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And in terms of fundraising activities, what does the museum do for fundraising activities every year? I would say our most public-facing fundraising activity would be our gala that we hold in December. And we usually have a theme that leads as a teaser to something we're doing the next year. So this year's gala was called In the Shadow of the Hills based off of Shirley Jackson's work. Shirley Jackson, of course, was the author that did, among many things, The Haunting of Hill House. So, and, and lived and worked in North Bennington during the mid 20th century. So we have a significant collection of her materials, archival materials uh, being gifted to the museum this year. And we're going to feature that in some small exhibitions. And we wanted to give people a teaser of that. So it wasn't a traditional holiday party. It looks like something out of out of a Victorian film or Harry Potter or something oh. of that high Gothic. And it really, really did well. We sold out. We had a snowstorm the day of, of the gala, and we <laughs> still had a number of people here. You couldn't tell there was a storm by the, the way the parking lot was jammed. Thank it goodness. was fantastic. Thank goodness. Now, your fundraising this year is for the aesthetics of the facility outside. You're going to try to improve that? So the, the aesthetics of the facility outside, of course, we've also got a, a fundraising push for the care of the collections to install new storage furniture for our collections area. Okay. Um, we, we reach out to individual organizations to support our education initiatives, which include a program that I think is really wonderful called Museum ABCs, which is a free program to young children, three to seven years old. It's done in conjunction with the local library, gets them involved with reading, gets them involved with art, free. We try to fundraise and underwrite a Museum Teachers Institute, which is training educators, high school and middle school educators, on how to use objects within a museum within their curriculum and how to incorporate into their lesson plans oh, cool. and make it something special. You know, just just to say it would be aesthetics or fundraising for operations would would be just too too off the top of everything. We we fundraise for everything, and we are building our muscle memory so we can go into a capital campaign. Hopefully, in the next couple of years. That's that's just great work. You're doing some great things, and I really like that. So you do a lot of work with school children and teachers. 
do you have a lot of the local school children or do school children come from New York, let's say, you know, to visit? We have a little bit of everything. And as we climbed out of post-pandemic, a post-pandemic world, as we moved into it, we see the school groups returning. We, we're very local to many of the local schools. In fact, there's a, a school right across from, from the museum and nothing will warm your heart more than seeing these kids walking, holding hands and crossing the street, coming into the museum for a field trip. So that is about as New England as you can get. But we also bring in school groups from, you're exactly right, New York State, all over the, the Vermont, the Southern Vermont area. And occasionally from Massachusetts as well. So we're bringing in quite a group of, of students. And you know, one of my hopes working with our development team is to find a way to help underwrite the transportation to the museum. Because, of course, schools, oh, yeah. like everywhere else, are stretched thin. And transportation is usually one of the things that they need to get to the institution. So we're hoping to support that. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Wow, I didn't think of that. That's very cool. Now, you mentioned publishing a newsletter. How often is it published? Newsletter is published once a month, and the Bennington Historical Society publishes their newsletter every other month as well. So we've got a nice little miniature publishing arm, and it's, it's a great-looking newsletter. It's gone digital, like many, many newsletters have. Both of them have, and we, we seem to get a good response from it. We get a good open rate. Now, if I join the museum as a member, do I get both of those newsletters? You can. If you do the Bennington Historical Society add-on, which I think is at $15 right now. Oh, okay. Okay. That's cool. So how do you keep the community informed about the progress of the museum in achieving its mission? Really interesting question. Now, I think you're familiar with how all all organizations go through a strategic planning process. And oftentimes that strategic plan is formulated, it's approved, and then it kind of sits on a shelf yeah. for another five years until you go through the process again. So my board's very invested in being able to track our progress. So I track that in various different metrics and, and using dashboards. And of course, I already mentioned the, the yearly members meeting where the community gets to sound off, but we try to maintain a really healthy presence in the community. I personally live in Bennington and make it a point to be seen in Bennington. Our development and marketing team always communicating using various methods. Best one that seems to work is, is through social media. People really tend to respond. And we can reach out to the local community and the wider community as well. We have a good relationship with the Bennington Banner, which is our local newspaper. They give us a lot of coverage. They do a lot of reporting on the events and things that are happening at the museum. And of course, that's picked up on social media as well. I've made various outreach pushes to both the Rotary, to local institutions that are, you know, we have mission adjacent compatibility. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it seems not to be a problem. It seems like the community community knows what we're doing and, and they're not afraid to, to let us know, good or bad, what they think. Fantastic. Sounds like great times. I want to ask what kinds of artifacts the museums received as donations from the public. Are you getting more stoneware and things like that from some of those folks in the, in the area? 
we we do receive a fair amount of donations, and of course, we also purchase objects too. We we certainly have gotten pieces that are associated with the Bennington Potters, which was a pottery company slash guild that was working in Bennington, still and still exists today. Oh, good artwork produced by people living in Bennington County and our associated areas, letters, archival objects, all, all sorts of things. So yes, we, we're still actively collecting. We're still collecting from the community and we have we have a pretty sophisticated vetting system to judge whether something should come into the museum. And I don't mean that in, in an elite way, but to talk about if we bring something in, is it going to tell a story? Is it going to help us move towards our mission? Mm-hmm. Will we be able to use it? We don't want to just take something just to take it and then to have it in storage and collect dust. Right. Yeah, that takes up room. That's hence you're adding more storage furniture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many artifacts would you say are in the collection? Well, I would say that we have around 44,000 artifacts, objects, photographs, archival collect- and collections. Of course, we also have have a library here in the museum as well that has around eight to nine thousand volumes and that 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 library was was centered on being a resource for genealogy for years for decades and it still is but as i'm sure you're familiar you know with the move toward digital assets or digital platforms where you can find this phenomenal amount of information the bound volumes that are that were once were common in genealogical libraries are not not as important, but it's that really specific area information, you know, town rosters, voting logs, right. um, graveyard maps that really were we really really can shine. So we still serve as an asset to the community. Our library is open when we're open. The museum is open two or three days a week and answers questions, helps to research. And we've we've undergone a really thorough reorganization of that space. So things are easier to find. Objects are in our collection software and there's just greater access to it. Fantastic. So you're helping people all year long, even though it's not the season yet. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. That's very cool. I also noticed you have an online search capability on your website. I think that's great and that you're using past perfect, if I understood it correctly. What kinds of collections do you have online? Well, we're trying to get as much online as we possibly can. We certainly have much more than our core collection. And in our our registrar really has done amazing work on not only caring for the collection, but giving people access to it and, and trying to make the online offerings as robust as they possibly can be. We do use Past Perfect. You know, it's it's the classic. It's the, the one of the old standards in the museum world. Right. It works well. It does what it needs to do for us. Is there is there a unicorn platform out there that can integrate between collections and archives and library? There's a few that try to be, but uh, we really haven't found one that fits yet. So Past Perfect is functionally uh, what we need at this point. Fantastic. That's great that people can go on there. And it's free to access those online collections, right? That is correct. Absolutely. Wow. We've talked about 
the events that you sponsor and all of the things that you're doing in the community and all of the things that you're doing with working with educators and so on, that must take a lot of volunteers to keep all that going. You're right. We, we, have, we have a tremendous variety of programming and much of it is volunteer driven. You know, a great example that, of course, is is our is our library, which volunteers are running and are reorganizing and just just doing a tremendous job. And of course, we also have adjacent to the property is the George Aiken Wildflower Trail, which is a volunteer run program. We have this beautiful walking trail with these beautiful Vermont flowering bushes and flowers and trees. And this, this is a community space. People can walk on it, walk their dogs, walk it for free. And it's really, it's headed up by volunteers. And without our volunteers, we couldn't maintain the level of programming that we have today. And we appreciate them. They really are important, not only to the running of the museum, but they're some of our best ambassadors out into the community. Very cool. I noticed on your Facebook page, you have a post from November 29th, 2022, and it was posted during Giving Tuesday, and it has a picture of a sign uh, outside of a fire company. I don't know if it's in Vermont or not, but it says, volunteering is cheaper than therapy, and I just love that. Mm. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is you'll, true. You'll come away feeling better about something, and Usually, you can see the the fruits of your your work. So we try to make it not just busy work, but something that's meaningful to our volunteers. Well, we know that the museum interfaces directly with the local historical society of Bennington. How does the museum interface with other state and county and regional societies in the area? That's where being out and about and being seen and being part of the the fabric of Bennington comes into play. So I've I'm going to answer that on my level, on a personal level, and then on an institutional level. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be a uh, appointed member of the Governor's Commission for the Vermont 250th for the celebration of the revolution, the 250th anniversary. Oh, great. And that that group is across across the entire state of Vermont. But I'm also involved with multiple layers of that. So there's a regional meeting that deals with all of the players from New England and New York and how we're collaborating on, on coming up with the celebration. And then, then there's a very, very local regional Bennington Center group, which because we're in this corner of three different states, we slip into Massachusetts, we slip into New York, and we, we deal with all levels of, of people that are interested in history from historical societies to reenactors to people that just have a general interest in, in the topic. And that, that's a really fruitful collaboration. So that's me personal. Institutionally, our educators and our curators are involved with a number of, of different institutions. They're, they're known quantities. They, they've produced events and programs that people can rely on. And they come back time and time again. So that kind of word of mouth just breeds more business for the museum and more opportunities for us to go to work with other historical societies, other museums, and and work on collaborations like the one we were working with the uh, Southern Vermont Art Center in Manchester. Yeah, very nice. I know that your website has 
a link for museum publications and that you have a Bennington Museum store. What kinds mm -hmm. of books has your museum published? Published a number of exhibition catalogs, working with a historical society. They've published works that deal with the history of, of the Bennington Shires, with local particular memorabilia groups. So it's it's not a large publishing arm, but we, we do a regular publication of a catalog, I would say, every three to five years. Coming out of the pandemic, it's been a little bit slow, but we, we have hopes for one for an exhibition in the next couple of years. So moving on. Very cool. And I'm just thrilled with your website. It's just got so much in it. It talks about visiting the museum and how to set up group and private tours and all kinds of things. It lists the current exhibitions and special exhibitions, and it goes into all of the events and programming that you offer. It's just great. There's just so much there. Can you talk about your website for a moment? Sure. I really appreciate you mentioning it because a lot of people put a lot of work into it. And it's funny that you're talking about our website because we're actually going to undergo a, a refresh of our website in the next few months. But we try to make the website as informative as possible to give people that early idea of what you're going to see when you come to the Bennington Museum. And it's also a great way to reach out and, and sell ourselves to the public and to inform people about our programming and the work we do. And linking it to our retail arm just makes sense. I mean, we are uniquely placed to offer objects for sale that perhaps you can't get anywhere else in the country. So if it makes sense, we, we will link those. Yeah, fantastic website. I encourage everyone listening to go to the Bennington Museum website. As soon as you do, and if you read any of it, you're going to want to visit the Bennington Museum, no doubt about it. It's just a great thing. Can I donate straight from the website? You can. Oh, fantastic. Can. And I encourage anyone who's listening to consider making a donation. Absolutely. Besides the website, does the museum use any other social media? Sure. We use Facebook and Instagram, and we have a small LinkedIn page that is active. And the social media is, is just tremendous for the museum. It really gives us an inexpensive avenue to give public access to our programs and to our objects and to what we're doing. So it, it really is an invaluable tool for the way we do business. Absolutely. Now, you have an amazing website. You got a huge amount of value for members and the communities you serve, no doubt. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want the people of your area to know about and support? So the museum, as I mentioned, is really striving to reach out to our community to ask them what, what we need to do for that community, what, what they're interested in, what they see as the value of the museum and how we can help other institutions, other not-for-profits, other for-profits, and just community members. But what we're, we're looking to do is we've, we've really spent time taking care of our operations at the museum. We feel like we have really good control of the building. We have everything tightened up and buttoned up. Our finances are stable. And now is the time where we're going to start thinking about how we can better serve our community, whether it's moving our library down a level, opening up exhibition space to better take care of our collections. And as I mentioned, that 
that kind of curb appeal. How do we how do we entice people to come to make this institution something that the community, which already embraces us, but really really can turn around and say that's my town's museum. That's that's the Bennington Museum. That's awesome. That's something that belongs here in the Bennington and other other areas can't touch it. And we really want to make it a point of community pride that this institution is here and is is well taken care of and is really active in the community. So that's that's a lot of words for saying we're doing a lot of things at the same time, but we are ramping up for a concentrated push on how to not expand ourselves physically, but expand ourselves into the culture of the community. That's really nice. I like the fact that you're doing more with the Native American tribes. I think that's very helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Martin, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back. experience hundreds of years of history and art in a single day. At the Bennington Museum, you'll find something for everyone. Please donate, join, support, and visit the Bennington Museum. For hours, admissions, membership, and volunteer opportunities, visit the website at benningtonmuseum.org. Oh my God! I think I've had a bit too much history. I think I've been thrown into an alternate reality. Sort of a parallel universe kind of thing. Hmm, no, I think it's just that I'm identifying so much with the people of the past. Excellent. This is kinda nice, knowing how things really work and using history to make better decisions for the future. I'm kind of digging this. Wow. I love history. Oh my goodness. Okay now, that's much better. Let's keep on listening. Wherever you get your podcast groove on, you can get all the history you can eat anytime with Preservation Oaks. Join other listeners at preservationoaks.podbean.com and let us know what you think by sending email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. This is Melody Lager, president of the Heartland Museum, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Heather Moran, the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society, located in Rockport, Maine. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. This is David Reed, chief curator with the Reno County Museum in Hutchinson, Kansas, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe at Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. I am General Matto Van Du Maximanus from the planet you refer to as BD 114672C. I am the legate of the second AB Picturis B region, governor of the approaches to NU Octantis AB, interplanetary consul, commander of the legions of AB Picturis A, 91 Aquari B, Mulionis B, and Gamma Library B, and I listen to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. When I was new, I was solid as a rock and ready for work. I could carry 1,700 pounds. 
My frame was made of hickory, poplar, and my tongue from an ash tree. I was sold to Bill and Mary. They loaded me up almost every week with all manner of things to haul. Spot and Brownie were hitched up to me and we all went along to town. I also hauled things the family needed from town back to the farm. When Mary died suddenly, they put her in me for the gentle final ride to the cemetery. Bill kept using me all the time, through all kinds of weather, I took a beating over those years. Then, for a long time, I stood behind the barn, alongside the thresher, unmoving and slowly rusting. I watched machines go by, hauling more than I can. Finally, I was loaded on the back of a flatbed truck, and they took me to a workshop. There, I was lovingly refurbished. They made sure all my parts were put back like new, and my wheels turned again. I was parked inside a museum. Electric lights show me off, and every day, people talk about how I'm made, how beautiful my wood is, and sometimes, occasionally, someone mentions Mary and Bill. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. And now, back to Preservation Oak. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Executive Director Martin Mahoney from the Bennington Museum located in Bennington, Vermont. Martin, thanks so much for being here and thank you for the information you provided to our audience about your museum. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. By the way, Martin mentioned that he's working on the 250th anniversary celebration of our democratic republic known as the USA. I believe that's in 2026. Is that right? That is correct. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I know there's so many dates with the American Revolution and, you know, when we actually became a country. I know 1776 was when the Declaration was ratified. There's also like the peace treaty in 1780s and the something in 1790s. I don't know. 1776 is it. That That is one of the dates. Of course, it's a rolling celebration for many, many people and, and many of our listeners. 1777, of course, being the Battle of Bennington Day is is the one that we're we're centered on. And I think it's also, you know, it's interesting that this is a celebration and it's a it's an event that people should coalesce and gather around, but it's also, as historians, it's not a celebration for everyone. Absolutely. Martin, I want to get you into a reflective mood, I guess, and I'm hoping that you can share your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12 folks. Well, it's, it's a couple things. Once it's, one, it's accessibility. You have to provide a way for children and their adults to experience history, whether it's public history, monuments, museums, or, or through plays or movies or through music some avenue you have you have to provide access to it so you know that goes to being open later providing transportation or just just making people aware of it and awareness is is 
Another thing that hinges on, you have to let the community know that you're here, that you're active, and that you want to reach out and support visits, in my case, to the Bennington Museum. You want to have them interact with you. You want to show them the value of it. And and the third thing is you have to make it exciting. You're not going to be able to entice young people to engage with your institution if you're just putting squares on the wall and labels on the wall next to it. Of course, the objects can move people and do move people, but you also have to provide some context, why it's important to them, why it why it's meaningful, and what makes this object just just the tipping point where you can start exploring a whole world that's associated with it. Yeah, well said. Thank you very much for that. So why is the museum important to the community? What makes your organization different or unique from others? Well, that's that's a question you can answer on a few levels. I mean, it's important to the community because we also we help drive the cultural economy, which is the economy of the area. We help we bring in X amount of visitors a year. We have our visitors spend money on hotel rooms, on lunches, on dinners, on gas, on souvenirs, and the town benefits from that. So that's that's a strictly financial calculation. We preserve and protect the history of our area. If not us, who? We make sure that people that were once voiceless in history have a voice or we're seen. We don't just display the history of the most wealthy, but we display the history of everyone in Bennington and our areas. And we always can do better and we strive to do better. And it's a continuous learning process. We add context to the way we look at historical figures. I mean, no, no historical figure is ever going to meet muster when held up to the standards that we set for ourselves today, right. nor will we meet muster when we are held up to people in the future. But we add context. We try to talk about why people were motivated to do X, Y, and Z, why people created works of art, why people somehow that were not formally trained artists just had to express themselves creatively and get it out of their system. And that spark is something we like to chase down. Yeah, it's very well said. Thank you. We want to celebrate celebrate not just the uh, achievements of, of people that, that reached the top of society in Bangkok, but we want to celebrate the achievements of people that were everyday workers or, or that maybe even failed in a spectacular fashion. But we want to talk about their stories and why they were important and why, why it has meaning, because I think that really, getting back to... How are we going to attract the next generation of people? Those kind of stories can speak to everyone. Right. Absolutely. Martin, is there any other information or any message you'd like the community or members to know about? No, just the, just the closing that the work that we do is is centered on the community and it, and it's driven by our members and we can't do the work we do without their support and and we're only limited by our operational capacity and our operational capacity is dictated by our budget so the more support we get the more community outreach we can do and the more good things we can continue to do for our community absolutely martin thank you so much for spending time with us today i really appreciate it i love the bennington museum and i'm so glad to meet you 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and can't wait to see where else you take this podcast. Thank you very much. If you have any ideas, let me know. Okay. The people of Bennington, Bennington County, and Vermont should be very proud of what you all have built. Listeners, please support the Bennington Museum with your donations and memberships, and please donate and visit. back everybody. Bennington, Vermont is definitely one of the USA's most beautiful areas and the skiing in the area is well worth a visit. It's very historic, naturally beautiful, peaceful, and full of culture. Right in the heart of Bennington is the Bennington Museum, a truly wonderful and well-managed part of America and truly one of our preservation oaks. This organization is what this podcast is all about. We have so much fun drawing attention to these wonderful organizations, and the Bennington Museum is certainly one of the magnificent gems of our country that everybody can feel great about supporting, visiting, donating to, volunteering at, and becoming a member of. Well worth it. This is a unique and distinctive museum in southern Vermont whose roots go back to the 1850s, it's quite rightly a point of community pride. The museum's 2023 season begins on April 1st and is filled with great things to do and see all year long. Take a look at the BenningtonMuseum.org website. There you'll find their plans, their exhibitions, their mission, and so much more. If you need help with your Bennington, Vermont family genealogical research, the museum has a research library and thankfully, the Bennington Historical Society is closely linked with the museum. The museum's leader, Executive Director Martin Mahoney, is a great lover of history. He is well-qualified, well-educated, well-experienced, knowledgeably well-spoken, very intelligent, and just a really enjoyable guy. I very much appreciated my time with Martin, and I thank him again for educating myself and our listeners about Bennington and the museum. The most pressing priorities for the museum are, one, adding additional collections area storage furniture. Number two is curb appeal, improving the aesthetics of the museum's front facing outside, including the front of the building and the parking areas, support for their educational initiatives, supporting the Teachers Institute on using objects in the museum within their curriculum, taking action to better serve the community, be as active as possible in the community, and work on the 250th anniversary celebration of our country in 2026 and the Battle of Bennington, which occurred in 1777. There's a good deal of great things going on all the time at the Bennington Museum. Here's a quote from Martin Mahoney. We've done a lot of work in the last year to six months of going out into the community and doing what I would characterize as empathetic listening sessions going to all sorts of groups from schools to other not-for-profits to veterans groups and asking the question, what are you looking for? Not going and saying, this is what we have to offer, but asking people what they need and what they want. 
So we are altering our programmatic offerings based on that feedback, and our educators have really taken the lead, and I couldn't be more proud of the way they're doing it. During our time together, we learned that the Bennington Museum is a world-class museum and indeed a national treasure. The museum has a Grandma Moses exhibit that is second to none, the Bennington Pottery Guild artifacts, and how Martin put it, other thoughtful exhibitions that inspire delight and inspire thought, as well as the history of the Bennington area. There's a number of membership levels. Take advantage of this today. A really great thing is that there is free admission to the museum for those 17 years old and younger. Another quote from Martin, The work that we do is centered on the community and is driven by our members, and we can't do the work we do without their support, and we're only limited by our operational capacity, and our operational capacity is dictated by our budget. So the more support we get, the more community outreach we can do, and the more good things we can continue to do for the community. The museum is supported 100% by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Bennington Museum today. Remember that volunteering is better than therapy because you can feel good supporting this great work. Now Martin reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the museum, so you know exactly where the funds are going and what the priorities are. You know that donated funding is going to a great cause. Please donate, donate, donate today to the Bennington Museum. The Bennington Museum, located in Bennington, Vermont, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. The contact information for the museum one last time, you can find them on the web at benningtonmuseum.org. You can visit them at 75 Main Street, Bennington, Vermont, 05201. You can phone them at 802-447-1571. You can email them at info at BenningtonMuseum.org, and you can find them on Facebook at Bennington Museum. Now, if you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the museum serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting them. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the museum is to the community and what kinds of excellent amenities they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes and Cymbalbird, RKVC, Doug Maxwell, Brian Boulder, Cool Jazz, and Track Tribe. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. Music